0: Why don't you open up your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 8 as we continue our series entitled Jesus is Greater. And this morning we'll be looking at an encounter that Jesus has with a Roman centurion and as we study this text we're going to come to a really wonderful point in the text where we understand something that Jesus is teaching us as he's come on the scene and he's telling and declaring to people that the kingdom has come and the kingdom is not just for Israel and so we see this in the life of the centurion who is a Gentile he's a Roman military leader but he's also an example of of an unlikely individual. And he's unlikely uh, because he's a Roman centurion. He's a Gentile. He isn't of the people of Israel. Uh, much like what you'll see in last week's sermon and even the following sermon, you have a, a leper, right? a very unlikely person, to encounter the grace and mercy of God. You see now a Gentile Roman centurion, very unlikely to receive the mercy of God. And next week we even see a very sick woman, Lord willing, we get there next week. Uh, you see a sick woman, which women are also in that time period, uh, people who were unlikely to receive uh, the mercy of God. Not that God didn't love the women, but in that culture, it was definitely a main uh, male-dominant culture. And so it was just not normative to have stories and parables about women. But yet, what you see here is Jesus saying, here's who the kingdom is for. Here's who is going to be a part of the kingdom. But this week, we have this centurion whose remarkable faith in the authority of Christ, in spite his upbringing and his position and all of these things, in spite of those things, his remarkable faith in the kingdom of God shows us that the kingdom of God is going to be full of people from every nation. It's gonna be full of people from every background. It's not just gonna be the the people of Israel, it's going to be people from all nations. And we see that coming through, which is a very large motif in the Gospel of Matthew, but we begin seeing it unfold here with this unlikely faith of the centurion. But what does that mean for us as we begin studying Matthew chapter 8 in the text? verses 5-13. through Well, it should be for us, and it's the preaching point for you this morning, it should show us that our lives should serve as shining examples of unlikely people in our own right, right? Not many of you were wise, not many of you were wealthy, Scripture says, not many of you were the people that people go to for information and leadership. Not many of us were those kind of people. However, by the grace and mercy of Christ, we have been bestowed this mercy and grace that we did not deserve, and so we ourselves are these unlikely people whose lives like the centurion, should serve as examples of people whose faith in Christ's authority proves sufficient to inherit the kingdom of God. And so for you and I, even as we begin unpacking the application to this text, what we should be saying is, you know, my life should serve as an example here. That it's not because I was born this way. It's not because I was prettier than my neighbor. It's not because I was wealthier or had more to offer to God. It's simply, like the centurion, that I would say, I trust in the authority of Christ. And that is sufficient for me to inherit the kingdom of God. And so if you haven't already, open up to Matthew 8. Because we want to put our eyes on the text. We want to study what God's Word has for us. Because what we want to do is take this a principle and Apply it to our lives so let's start with doing that there in verse 5 of matthew chapter 8 when jesus had entered capernaum a centurion and again it's a roman gentile military leader and centurion right cent all right if you have a penny how many of those pennies do you need to make a dollar So centurion was a military leader over approximately 100 people. So you know he wasn't he wasn't the emperor by any means, but he definitely had some particular authority over people. I mean, how many of you guys have direct authority over 100 people? Okay, so you begin thinking how much leadership and authority and clout this man had in a region that wasn't rural in, in the way rural would be defined in a lot of parts in the first century, but it definitely wasn't a metropolitan area. And so in any stretch that you, you try to understand the centurion's authority and, and privilege in that time, I mean, he was a very mouthpiece of Rome, if he says it, the emperor says it, in his context. He has a hundred people under his direct authority. He tells them what to do. They do it. This man has a little bit of standing in the community. And if you read over in the parallel passage in Luke chapter 7, you're going to find that not only does he have a lot of clout, that people actually liked him a lot. The Jewish elders really liked him a lot. If you read in Luke 7, you'll find that this centurion actually built the synagogue there in Capernaum. And so he was very liked, very well loved in that area. He had a lot of authority, a lot of privilege as a representative of Rome. But this man, he came forward to Jesus. And again, if you go to Luke's Parallel passage there. It's going to tell you that these Jewish elders actually came forward on his behalf. It's important because as you begin having to read through the Gospels, you're going to find in some ways that the little bits of the nuances and details are changed. In maybe like for this example here, that you have Matthew who says that the centurion came forward to him, but in the Gospel of Luke, with the same with the same account, you say, well, the elders came, not. The centurion. So, how can you and I, as Bible believing Christians, say there isn't a contradiction here? Well, very simply, I mean, in, in Luke, Luke is a very detailed man. Luke's a doctor. Luke likes details. Luke likes to get in the weeds of things because that's what doctors like to do, right? People with big brains like to get into little details. Matthew, on the other hand, he's like, I want to get to the point. I want to get rid of all the details that may be unnecessary to prove the point that I'm trying to make. And I want to focus on what I'm really here to get you to understand. And so all that we see here, if you're reading Luke's account in chapter 7 and you're reading Matthew's account... Really, what Matthew is saying is, hey, he came forward. How did he come forward? Well, he had representatives that came forward on his behalf. And so really all we see here, if we're going to harmonize these two texts, is the centurion came to Jesus. In Luke, it just shows us in detail that really coming to Jesus, he instead sent these delegates, because he had a lot of authority, he sent these people emissaries on his behalf, these Jewish elders, who they were Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. And he said, Can you go tell this Jewish rabbi, this teacher, this healer, that my servant is in need? And so, no need for you and I, uh, no need for you and I to question the, uh, the veracity, the truthfulness uh, of Scripture. Uh, because there is no contradiction here. It's just Matthew got to cut through details and get to the point of the message. And his point to the message is this centurion, whether he was there personally, which we know that he's not according to Luke chapter 7, he sent people to appeal to Jesus. Right? He appealed. And this is interesting. For a Western reader, you, you have to understand the context here. For a Western reader, you're going to say, oh, okay, this is great, one of those other stories where somebody comes up to Jesus You have to understand this is a surprising encounter by any measure. I mean, we have a Roman Gentile military leader who Rome has occupied Israel. And you recognize as you read through the Gospels, there's a lot of places in the Gospel where uh, you have the disciples and other people saying, Messiah, have you come to restore the, the kingdom into our hands? What is he saying? Have you come to destroy Rome and put us at the epicenter where we used to be when Solomon and David was reigning? Have you come to bring us back to this wonderful place, to the pinnacle of our, of our nation? Are you here to destroy Rome? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know when I've come to restore the kingdom. Because there's a time where Christ is going to come back. He is going to restore all things. He's going to take all of the nations, and he's going to tear them down, and he's going to build his kingdom here, and he's going to restore all things. We understand that eschatologically. But here, you have to at least have a little bit of that background, a taste of that background, just to see when a Jewish reader is saying, A who? Talked to who? And did what? Because for us, it should astound us to a certain extent that we see a, a Roman centurion here beseeching and appealing to Jesus for anything. I mean, he is, the, he is the embodiment of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire doesn't need nothing from nobody. But yet here in the picture, we see a Roman Centurion who's occupied Israel, who in a large part, although this centurion and a lot of centurions that you read about in the in the New Testament are actually very liked, which I think is is an exact example of how bad these centurions were in that culture, how bad the Roman military was, because often when the scriptures make someone look good, particularly when it's uh, Gentiles, it's to prove to the Jews that. They're not all that they are cracked up to be in their own minds. And so the three times that you do see centurions brought up in the New Testament, they're often pretty wonderful guys. But for somebody who's an astute reader of the Bible, that's going to help you understand something. You know, these people probably weren't that great if one of the points that we're trying to prove every time we bring up a centurion is God's going to also save Gentile Roman centurions who have occupied your home nation. You see the point there? And so we have that even here. And we have this centurion in great reverence and humility appealing to Christ with his emissaries who have gone before him. And verse 6 tells you, he says, Lord, sends this message to Jesus, Lord. Again, uh, you guys were here a little while, Dr. Chris McKinney, a little while back when he did his archaeology uh, message. Raise your hand if you're here for that. Come on, give me a second. There we go. Okay, and you remember there was a lot of emperor cult worship. And so you, you see even the, the, the tension here that, well, only Caesar is Lord, but now here you still see the centurion who's understanding something about the authority of Christ where he's willing to say, Jesus, Lord. Right, so you already see, oh man, this Gentile is starting to understand something that in that time period was remarkable, to look at a Jewish carpenter and even with reverence and humility call him Lord when Caesar is Lord. And you have him continuing, and he, he beseeches, he's appealing on behalf of his servant, and he says, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, I'll come and heal him. And you skip down to verse 13, and it shows you uh, that Jesus responds to the centurion later in this passage. It says, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Really, what I want to zoom into, particularly as we 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 get to this first point that we're going to write down in a moment, that we recognize the unlikely faith of the centurion. The unlikely faith. And what it should do for us is it should make us think, wow, look at the grace and mercy of God that has busted outside of the walls of Israel and has now gone into Gentile hearts. People who do not know God people who didn't, were not raised in the Christian homes, people who we would have thought are the furthest away from the kingdom, as I read this text and as Jesus is talking about him, I recognize, wow, I mean, people are coming to know Jesus who we would have never thought would come to know Jesus. And not only do they know him, they're expressing their faith publicly and practically, which is something I want you to note here, We'd see the centurion not just you know laying back on the couch with his, his servant over there dying on the bed, eating potato chips, watching the game, and saying, "The, the God is sovereign and He's good. If you're going to die, you're going to die. If you're going to be healed, you're going to be healed." He says, "No, no, no. I believe in the authority of Jesus. I'm going to go get Him. I'm going to go. I'm going to go appeal to Him and I'm going to intercede to Him on your behalf because I have faith." that Jesus is going to come and he's going to intercede and he's going to, with his authority, heal you. And we see that practically expressed here through intercession. I mean, intercession just means that you got a problem, I'm going to say, I, I know the person with a solution. Right? You have issues, right? you need, you need answers to the, the big problems in your life. Me, as, a, as somebody who has un- very unlikely faith, I'm a Gentile. If you're not Jewish in here, you're a Gentile. And when we recognize in our own lives, for us to practically exercise faith in Christ, intercession needs to be a big part of our lives. I mean, I'm not going to be like we see this centurion here. We're not going to be self-motivated people, which is one of the big problems why our faith doesn't seem so remarkable after all. Because when we pray, who do we pray for? Me, myself, and I. Right. I mean, that's usually the top of my prayer list. That's usually the most things I pray about. And most of the time, we don't have prayer lists. But when I'm driving down the road to get to work, I'm still praying because that's my prayer time. And I'm praying about me, myself, and I. Right? It is very unlikely, particularly of a Roman centurion. But unfortunately, even in a culture like ours, that we would be expressing our own faith through interceding for other people. And we see this here. He's my servant. And again, understand, centurion, authority is here his his clout is here his status and culture is here he's got a servant okay which is a slave okay slaves were property slaves were not in a large part loved and cared for as members of the family although as you see christianity spreading and the kingdom ethic spreading you actually see that becoming more the case you can read colossians and philemon to see that uh, expressed and fleshed out more Uh, in detail, but, but here, yet you have this centurion here who says, you know what? There is value in the life of my servant who has served me, and at the end of the day, he's hurting, and I, regardless of my status and regardless of my position, am going to go. I'm going to intercede on behalf of my servant because of the faith that he has in Christ. And so, as we continue developing this and nailing this down, I want you to sum it up this way in point number one. You need to appeal to God on behalf of others. Right? If you're going to be an example, if you're going to be a shining example of faith in your circles of influence, you're going to need to be an interceder. Right? You're going to need to intercede on behalf of those around you who are in need. I mean, we see this explicit throughout the New Testament. One verse you can jot down is Ephesians 6:18. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18 says this. You need to be praying at all times in the Spirit. Forget just driving our car to work. We need to be making sure that we're praying at home. Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. You need to have the Word with you when you get up, when you lie down, when you're walking along the path, and your prayer life needs to follow suit. We need to be praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So we're going to pray and we're going to petition God. Not for our will to be done, but for his will to be done, and our prayer to be a means in which God would answer our prayer according to his will. In a way that God would use means for his will to be done in my life, in your life. And he says, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints. Did you hear that? So when I wonder, well, who am I supposed to pray for? The question is, all the saints. We get other scriptures that you need to go pray for everybody. So if you're prayerless, you're having a problem growing your prayer list this morning, I hope is at least a helpful way for you to start thinking, well, what is? what are the boundaries of my prayer list They're, it's unbounded? Your prayer list should be long. It should be thorough. It should be capable for you to spend hours and hours in prayer if you took name by name. But the point of the matter is, Scripture is teaching us to make sure that we're interceding for people, for all the saints. We look at the centurion and the reason he's even here. I mean, think about this. The reason he's even in the text is simply because he did this one thing. He interceded on behalf of his servant to the Lord Jesus. The only reason we're talking about him 2,000 years later. And so if we think, well, this doesn't seem like such a big deal, Pastor. I don't know why you're making this a big deal. It's such a big deal that it made its way into the New Testament for you and I to take it and to apply it to our very lives. And so if we're saying that intercession should not be a bigger deal in my life, then we should be asking that question if you have flawed logic like that, and you should be saying, well, why is this text in the Bible? This text is in the Bible to show you that one of the marks of the faith of genuine disciples one of the 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 signs of faith for someone who truly knows that jesus is lord is that you're going to go and not only pray for yourself but you're going to go pray on behalf of others around you isn't it an unlikely thing in a selfish world that we live in to pray for other people isn't it an unlikely thing in the culture we live in to be spending time praying for other people and you're like, oh, not for me. Okay, well, I know we often think about ourselves way more highly than we ought to, so let's think about other people. If somebody spent time uh, and they texted you and say, hey, I spent time praying for you specifically today, you would sit there and you'd say, that's, that's remarkable, wouldn't you? You would say, that for me? You, you spent time today when you could have been thinking about me, myself, and I, all my problems, all my worries, and all my warts, and yet, you spent time thinking about me. Before the throne of God, you went, and you, as you were speaking to God, you brought me up in the conversation. Remarkable, isn't it? It is a remarkable thing to live in a world where people would actually pray for you, that you would actually be somebody who prays for other people. I have a man who texts every Friday. I'm praying for you. He texts me and Pastor Abbott every single Friday, and he prays every single Friday for us. And I know I'm going to get a text before 730 every single Friday that says, I'm praying for you guys. And every once in a while he says, say, give me anything you need me to pray for. I have a group of men every Sunday morning to gather with me in my office, and they pray for the sermon. They pray for the preaching of God's Word. And it is a remarkable thing that every single week on the dot I know that I'm going to be interceded for, on behalf of people in this church. It's a remarkable thing, because for the average person, it's difficult to even show up to church on time. Much less get here early enough to pray for the pastor, who should have been working on this all week anyway. What does he need my prayer for? And <laughs> you know, he'll be fine. I've got the problems. I'm the look at these children. Look, I, I've got he. He needs prayer. I need prayer. I gotta get these kids checked in. I gotta get them dressed. I gotta get them. You see what I'm saying? It's very easy for you to validate in your own mind why you need prayer and someone else doesn't. And we're gonna say that is that is the current of our culture. Me, me, me. It's a remarkable thing, however, that you would go and sacrifice whatever is going on in your life to intercede for another. And you don't think God's going to use that. You haven't read much of the Bible. Because that's exactly the kind of faith that Jesus takes time, which we'll see in a moment. And he, and he takes time in his ministry and he says, let's pause and let us talk about this centurion's faith, which we will in a moment. And if you think that God wouldn't pause the life of somebody else that you're praying for and the Holy Spirit would work and convict into their lives to say, let's pause for a moment and recognize that this person's faith... That in the midst of their own busyness and chaos, they have sat and they have prayed for you. And you must ask, why are they doing that? What is different about them? And why are they willing to do something that I myself am unwilling to do or often I don't set apart time to do? What is different about their faith? And then Jesus will use the Holy Spirit, will use the Word of God to help convict that person to live according to the kingdom of God just think about you Let's talk more about interceding for people if you're in a life group which if you're not in a life group i want you to after this service go to the connect table and say i need to get in a life group because i you're probably not praying for a lot of people if you're not even in community with people who are praying you need a life group go get you a life group a life group is a small group of people who do life together here we study god's word together and we live life together and guess what we also do we pray together every single life group i know this for a fact you have a time of prayer and praise at the end where you have a scribe who writes down all the prayers and writes down all the praises and they codify them on a note and they email them to all of you. For that week, in hopes and expectation that, that's right, you would intercede on behalf of the people in your life group to the Lord. Don't raise your hand unless you just feel super, super encouraged. How many of you do that every single week? Got a couple people, okay, that's fine, I get it. Everyone's like, I'm humble, I'm humble. But how many of us don't? How many of us don't? It's a nice little email, kind of sits there until the next one comes in, until the next one comes in, the next one comes in, until the next one comes in, and we're not praying, and we're not interceding. Okay, even if you do, I mean, think about this, even if you do pray through your list, how many of us follow up with the people concerning their prayer requests? Hey, I remember I prayed for this last week. Can you give me an update on what the Lord's doing in your life? Hey, I remember this. I prayed for this. Uh, how's that going? Is there anything else I can pray for you about? Are we following up with these prayers? This is the part of intercession that is so missing in our church. Is We'll often say, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. There is, we don't pray. We say things. We like to say, we like to say things that will make people feel better but we're not actually going to go do the work of prayer. And yet we wonder, why is not God answer more prayers in the life of our church? Because we have a group of people who like the idea of prayer, but not the work of prayer. And we need to be a church who is willing to go intercede on behalf of other people. I could, pray, I could preach this point for the next hour. We can do that? Uh, I'm not. However, for instance, we have a prayer meeting tonight. You want to know across history historically what the lowest attended event at a church is? What is it? Prayer night. Isn't that interesting? Lowest attended event in the history of church. Prayer nights. Because what we really don't want to do is go spend time praying for an hour and a half about things that aren't immediately concerning us in the moment. But I promise you, if you had a catastrophe in your life, you had an emergency in your life, the first place you're going to go is where? I'm going to go to a prayer meeting. There's a bunch of people there that said they'll pray. I'm going. Why? Because I, haven't, I have something going on. It, and all I'm saying is, as a shepherd to a congregation, is it ought not to be so. We ought to be desiring and longing. And even saying, I may not feel like going. Ask my wife about me. You may not feel like going. But you know what's interesting? I didn't ask my feelings what my plans were tonight. I told my feelings what my plans were tonight. And I brought them along with me. Amen? amen? All right, we'll move on. says we all amen. You know, what's even more unlikely, I think, than the prayer of the centurion is the response of the centurion in verse 8. I mean, I want you to look at verse 8, put your eyes on that, and let's look at it together. We have Jesus coming and saying, I'm going to come heal this man, and we definitely see in verse 13 that he did it. But but look at look at the interchange between the centurion and uh, and Jesus, verse eight. But the centurion replied, and again he has these emissaries, right? He has these friends, he has these Jewish elders, and at this point Jesus is on his way there. If you read Luke seven, uh, and then these the Jewish elders came back and they told the centurion Jesus is on his way, and the centurion said, Whoa, 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 whoa! No, 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 no! Who am I to have Jesus? Brace the door in my house." Like, no, 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 no. And so he sends his friends out back to Jesus, and this is what transpires. He sends his friends back out there and said, "Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed." Just think about the humility. talked about deference last week. talked about humility of the centurion to say listen i am unworthy again centurion for some reason or another well liked many of the jewish leaders there he's a leader over 100 troops he's a mouthpiece of the roman empire in galilee and he says to a, a jewish carpenter who for many in that time didn't even know who his daddy was and he says lord i am unworthy to have you come into my home but and i love this because you have this humility there i'm not worthy but then you have this remarkable faith but only say the word and my servant will be healed he's like you don't even have to come touch him i know i know the authority that's vested in you i know that you have an authority from god to do these things and you can do it from way over there so in my great humility and my great faith, I'm not even asking you to come see me face to face. And that's a great, humble remark, because many of us would say, they ain't even going to come say hi. That they're not even, even going to come. They, they came all the way to town, and they didn't come see me. They didn't text me. They didn't call me. They don't want to come hang out. Because what, what, ultimately, it's about us, right? I can't, am I not enough, right? Am I not good enough? Am I not, do I'm not loved enough by them and yet, we have here where the centurion says, I, I ought not to be loved enough. I ought not to be sufficient. I, I know I am unworthy in light of who you are. But if you would just, from way over there, just say a word, I know that my servant's going to be healed. Right, this kind of faith and humility in Christ, it transcended societal norms. I mean, do you remember? Do you not just remember? Uh, Sermon on the Mount, when, uh, when somebody forces you to go one mile, go with them another. Do you know, how, you know why that was enacted in that culture? Centurions and soldiers who got to go up to any, any person, any Jew at the time and said, hey, this stuff's heavy, you take it and you carry it for me, all right? You take it, I don't want to carry it. And it was law that they had to take that and had to carry it a mile every step, and they had to like it. And Jesus said, hey, if they ask you to do that, when you get to that last step, why don't you just say, hey, this ain't that heavy. I'll go with you another mile. This is the kind of person that we're talking about here. And yet, this countercultural faith in Christ, in spite of his background and who he, in a worldly sense, represents. But then he is he's commenting, that is, the centurion is commenting on his own assurance of the authority of Jesus. He then says, "Now I get how this works. I understand how authority works. Verse 9. He says, you don't have to come here. I know you don't. Because I know how authority works. For I, too, am a man under authority. He's like, I'm under authority. I'm under the Roman authority. I have people over me. And he says, but I also have soldiers under me. Verse 9. And I know with those who are under me, and I know those who are over me, they can do this. They can say to one, go, and he goes. And he can say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, go do this, and he does it. Basically, he's saying that I know how how authority works. You don't have to be here. You can send your power and authority without stepping foot in the room. Just like me, as a Roman centurion, I can tell my hundred soldiers, go do this, go do that, go do this, go do that. And I don't have to show up to know the work's going to get done. And he said, I know how authority works. Now, think about this, though. In order for that to have been true, the Roman centurion actually had to believe that Jesus had authority. Right? Which, don't miss that. Because it was always, when, particularly when it was the religious Jewish leaders, they were always trying to question what? The authority of Jesus. On what authority do you do this? Well, he does this or the power of Beelzebub. Right? And the power of Satan he casts out. He was, they are always questioning his authority. And then we have this, this centurion who's saying, I know how it works. I know you've been bestowed the authority by God to go out and to fulfill the mission that God has given you. And I submit myself to that. I know how it works. And you don't even have to show up because I know you have the power to say it is finished. And when it is finished, it is done. I mean, that's remarkable faith, isn't it? considering, Considering who the centurion is. Jesus, verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Now, don't miss that because that's exactly where the rest of this text is going. No one in Israel have I found such faith. I mean, this is an indictment on the people of Israel who are supposed to be very faithful, who are supposed to set the tone for faith in God. And yet Jesus is saying here, wow, this Roman Gentile, who historically has had no part in the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, gets it. And the people who were born into this, I can't even find that faith in them, but I found it in someone to whom the kingdom at that point did not belong. And that's when Jesus begins teaching about this kingdom ethic. And he's saying, there is a centurion who encounters Jesus, and Jesus is contrasting the faith of a Gentile and the and the unfaithfulness of the people. Of Israel, which we see all throughout the prophets in the Old Testament, but we see it applied in real life here with the centurions. And as Jesus comes on the scene and creating this new, this new dispensation, that is this dispensation of 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 grace that's coming and the inclusion, this secret that we read about in Ephesians and some of the new, uh, the new epistles of the New Testament, where there's a mystery that's unveiled. This mystery that you don't read in the Old Testament. You know what you don't read about in the Old Testament? A clear Picture of, of Gentile inclusion into the kingdom of God. You see glimpses of it, don't you? Rahab. You see you see her. Well, Rahab? What's she doing? She's not she's not a Jewish gal. You see other people in, included in the lineage. I mean, you see it in Matthew one, we we read about that. Oh, I, I don't know what fifteen years ago now, uh, a couple of years ago, right? Where well, you see these these people like that's not a Jew. That you see these hints. I get it. You see these glimpses of Gentile inclusion into the kingdom of God, but it is quite a mystery as you read the Old Testament why in the world they're there. However, in in the New Testament, Paul says there's this mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles that has now been unveiled in Jesus Christ, and we begin seeing that unwrapped for us in the ministry of Jesus Even before we get there, I just want you to think about the centurion and I want you to think about the disposition of the centurion. How did the centurion approach Jesus? What did he have to say about his home and about his life in comparison to the the authority of Christ? He has one thing to say not worthy. I'm not worthy. I want you to put it this way point number two. You need to express your faith with an unworthy disposition. Express your faith with an unworthy disposition. That's a kind of remarkable faith, isn't it? Particularly in our culture today. I mean, how many people do you talk to, and maybe you're one of I mean, I know we all are in one sense or another, how deserving we are of the goodness of God. How much we deserve the God to answer our prayer. How, you know, we, we do all these things, so why in the world would God not do what I want Him to do? I serve more than anybody else. I read the Bible more than anyone else. I pray more than anybody else. Of course, I deserve God to do what I want Him to do. I mean, but here we have this Roman centurion who, in a lot of ways, could do the same thing. Who built the synagogue here in Galilee? Who has come over here and not just domineered over the people of Israel and their God? I've come here. I've built good relationships with these people. God could just do this one thing for me since I've done so much for him. It's logical, isn't it? But instead, he says, I'm not worthy to have you come here and do anything for me, but I'm still appealing on behalf of my servant that if you would just say the word, he would be healed. As Christians, we need to get back into a very unpopular concept in the Christian faith, and that is living with an unworthy disposition. Who am I? I mean, we see this all throughout Scripture. Who am I to receive any of the goodness and the grace of God? And there, there is a truth, right? Well, I'm in Christ. I'm in Christ. What do you mean, who am I? I'm in Christ. Yes, but how did you get there? How do you stay there? Not worthiness, not your worthiness, the goodness of God, in spite of your unworthiness. You see, I, I understand and we can say it. I, I am a child of God. You are by what? By grace, by no work of your own. You aren't sufficient in anything to do anything for yourself, but only God. And so we have to get out of this, we have to get out of this inward thought that I am worthy to receive those things that I get. Unworthy, completely unworthy. And I know I'm a child of God, but even that, understand how did you become a child of God? Was it because of your worth? Because of your inherent value apart from the grace of God? Let's start there and let's stay there and then recognize that anything that we receive from God would be a wonderful gift of His grace and mercy that I deserve not, Right? Let me give you a good, wonderful parable that drives us home. Uh, Flip to Luke 17. Open up your Bible to Luke 17. Luke 17, verse 7. Jesus shares this parable, and he says, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field? So what we're saying is, hey, you have people who are working for you. When they're done working from the field, are you going to say, Come on in at once. Recline at the table. Or, or... Will he not rather say, verse eight, "Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward you will eat and drink." So really we're saying, OK, you got somebody. you got these, you got these servants who are coming and they got a job to do. They got a job outside the house. they got a job inside the house. Right? they have responsibilities. They have a stewardship. You've given them authority over and stewardship over the, some things on the outside, some things on the inside. And ultimately what they're doing is they're serving you. And when they're done with their outside chores and they're coming in, are you going to say, hey, come on in here and recline and hang out with me? Or are you going to say, no, 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 now you got your inside responsibilities to do. Go inside. Now you're going to make dinner. You're going to dress properly. You're going to clean up. And you're going to serve me while I eat and drink. And afterwards, after that, you go eat and drink and you have a meal. And you go make sure that, that your needs are taken care of, that you eat, that you drink, that you, have, you go to bed early so you can get up the next day and, and serve again. But ultimately, you have a responsibility. Verse 9, does he thank the servant because he, because he did what was commanded? And there's an, a great place to sit and think as a Christian servant of God. I mean, do the, does the servant expect to be thanked by his master for doing his job? Verse 10, so also, when you have done all that you were commanded, this is Jesus, by the way, Jesus' words, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done what was our duty. This is not how many people see their relationship with the master, is it? We, I go to church, I go to life group, I pray for people, God should thank me for being the kind of Christian that I am. God ought to thank me with physical blessings because of just the kind of man I am. Because right? that's just the kind of guy I am. I'll do things for God, but I expect him to do things for me. But that is not the disposition at all that Jesus says that the servants of God ought to have. The servants of God ought to say, you know what? Uh, I do have a stewardship. And it's amazing that I get a place under this house. Right? I mean, you understand, the servant was a, was a member of that household. And you and I are a member of the household of God. And we're called servants of the Most High. We are the the servants, we are the doulas, we are the slaves of God, and we get under His roof, we get the stewardships and privileges of being there, but we have a responsibility, and we have a stewardship, and we have work to do. And when we look at this text, we're going to say, when I'm doing all the the work that I'm doing, uh, do I get to slack off? No. I mean, do I get to do half of my things and not the other half? No. But after all that, does God need to thank you for all that, that He's called you to do and commanded you to do? Has He thanked you enough? He saved you. He bought you with a price. He took your place on the cross and died for your sins. that You would not have to take the wrath of God on your own behalf. And we're like, yes, but I need more. And we're going to say, well, that again, we start moving outside of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Because at the end of the day, the right response is this. We're unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. I've just done my job. And how many Christians, in church, if you look at me, how many of us, after we've had a long day, we're dealing with people that we often don't want to deal with, we're raising our children, we're trying to live in our home, loving our spouse, and, we're, and we are, and when we don't, we repent. And I've had a long day, and actually it's Friday, so I've had a long week. I've done all these things, and I get home, and I kick off my shoes, and I say, I'm unworthy, I've only done what was my job. Or, it's been a long week, I deserve some time off, I deserve everything that I'm going to choose not to do this week, and everything that I'm going to choose to do this week, it's mine, I deserve it. It's quite different than the attitude that we see in Luke 17, 7-10, and the attitude that we see in Matthew 8, 5-13, that we would say, man, it's amazing that I get to be a part of this thing at all. I mean, it's surprising that I get to be a part of anything that God is doing. And at the end of the day, if God's given me anything to do, all I'm doing is the job that He's given me to do. You know, it's an unlikely thing in this world to express unworthiness, particularly in a world that things they deserve everything. We need to make sure that we live our lives as a Christian, understanding that we deserve nothing from God. We were His enemies. He's brought us into His household, and that any gift of grace that He would bestow on us is completely from Him, and I deserve it not. Now, think about your life, your Christian faith. If you understood that you didn't deserve anything from God, think about the way that you do receive the blessings of God. When you think, then, I thank God more deeply for the blessings that he does give me. I mean, it's, it's one thing to thank God for things you think you deserve, isn't it? Ah, thanks, God. Keep it up. Right? It's another thing to thank God for that blessing that you recognize you were unworthy to receive from God. Quite different, isn't it? The way that you would speak to God, the way you would receive that, the way that you would steward that, quite a bit different when you're an unworthy servant. Think about your waiting. Wouldn't your waiting be way more patient? I don't deserve anything that God would would bestow upon me. And I'll wait. And if God so chooses to give it to me, he shall. And I will wait all the more patiently for the time where he would bless me with this and then trust the Lord. And you think about that third part. Wouldn't the no's be accepted more readily? When God says no, which God does that in all of our lives, when he says no, I don't throw a tantrum because I think I deserve all the things that God could ever give me. But I say, you know what? You're, you're right. God, I don't deserve that. And as a matter of fact, because you do love me in spite of my, myself, that I trust that the nose are a wonderful fatherly decision in your love and compassion for me that I also don't deserve, and that I would recognize that your nose are a blessing in my life. Just think about the way you relate to God as an unworthy servant versus how you would relate to God as a selfish, absorbed individual, which all of us have to fight, right? I mean, we can point the fingers up here at the stage. Point everywhere we go, we can say, we often live so absorbed with ourself that we got to step back and say, no, 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 I need to be a Christian who expresses my faith in Christ with an unworthy disposition. Let's continue, finish this up, look at verse 11. I love this because, and this is what I hope that we, as we take this to our life groups, I want you to, to recognize that the unlikely faith of this centurion, Jesus was able to use him as an example. And, and tell a small parable and pointing at the centurion. And Jesus was marveling at the faith, which I love this. Wouldn't you love Jesus to marvel at your faith? Wouldn't you love that? That Jesus would say, well, wow, that's, that's my child. You know, that would be wonderful, wouldn't it? I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, this is already interesting. So to a, to a Jewish crowd... He's saying, many are coming from east and west. And he's like, wait a minute. No, 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 no. East and what? That's what we were trying to keep from happening. Do you not remember when we tried to go into Canaan land? It was get them away from the east and west. Close this border off. You got to run these people out. And when we didn't run them out, now we got these Canaanites running around. You know, that's what they've been told their whole lives. All right? we, need to, we need to make sure that we, we don't let it happen from east to west. But Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Many will come from east and west. What he's saying is, there are going to be a massive inclusion of Gentile nations throughout the world in the kingdom of God. They're going to be there, right? They're going to be there. They're going to be people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation, and they're going to recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. This is very important because Abraham was given the promises. Isaac was handed down those promises. And then he had Jacob and Esau as his twin sons, and then or not, were they twins? They weren't twins. Yeah, they were twins. Yeah, they heel grabber. That's right. He grabbed his seal. Right, that's right. Grabbed grabbed his heel, hill grabber, deceiver. That's right. And, and then God providentially in His great love says, I'm going to name you Israel. So you have to understand that to, uh, to call them Israel is to call them a specific people, a specific group of people that did disclude everyone else. And this is the world they grew up in and you have to understand that there was a promise of God that God has that does have for Israel. We believe in the future fulfillment of the promises of Israel that were from the Abrahamic promises to the Davidic promises. But it's that mystery there that we read about in the New Testament where the Gentiles are grafted in. That we are somehow we were a wild olive branch, shoot, olive branch. And then God in his great kindness would say, you know what? You ever grafted a plant? You cut that little trunk open, you splice it in, and you wrap it up. And then we're going to be nourished by the promises of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as Gentiles, and we're going to receive the promises of God. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. There are going to be these Gentiles who are going to come, and they're going to recline at the messianic banquet of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're going to benefit from the promises of Abraham, not because of their ancestry but because they trusted in Christ for entrance into the kingdom. Second part, look at verse 12. While the sons of the kingdom, now this is important. Wait a minute. If they're sons of the kingdom, why aren't they in the kingdom? Because you aren't going to be a son of the kingdom simply because you were born a Jew. Simply because you were born from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob doesn't mean that you're going to have a bought concrete, stamped, name-plated seat in the kingdom of God. Because verse 12 says there are going to be sons of the kingdom who are going to be thrown out into outer darkness. And in that place, there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The picture we get of eternal destruction in hell. I mean, that's the picture we get. So there are going to be these Jews who trust in their lineage to receive the promises of God, and they're going to discover that their ancestry is just not sufficient. For entrance into the kingdom of God, and they'll end up perishing outside the kingdom of God. And so we recognize, I thought, I thought we said that we believe there's gonna be these fulfillment of promises for Israel. There are. And when Jesus comes back, God will open up the veil of Israel, and they will look and they will say, Ah, the Messiah, the one that we've become, the one who we waited for, the one who's going to come, and he's gonna make an end of all of the pagan nations, and he's gonna set up his kingdom here, the Messiah that we've been waiting for. And you're like, Yeah, it makes sense. That's what the prophets foretold, wasn't it? And that will be so. But still, it isn't on the ancestry of Israel. Even as we look at the millennium, even as we look at the eschatological fulfillment that's coming, will they find their place in God's kingdom? But it will be because as they look at the king on his white horse coming, they will say, ah, the one whom we've been waiting for, of whom our faith and our trust is in, who will bring the kingdom of God. And so even then, Israel will be saved through Christ. That's, that's a good picture of what we have inherited and engrafted grafted into, and yet what is coming in the new kingdom in the millennium to come. And I get it. There are a lot of opinions in our society about who gets into the kingdom, right? Everybody, nobody, half the people, none of the people. Who gets into, the who gets into heaven? Right? Who gets saved? But there was a clear assumption in the day of Jesus that the kingdom was distinctly a Jewish privilege, and this is this is you Abraham Isaac and Jacob we're the children of the promise no one gets in here, but Jesus takes time in his teaching that and uses a Gentile centurion as a parable of who's actually getting into the kingdom and that's what is so beautiful about this text and you must as you're interpreting the Gospel of Matthew include this as a major part of your understanding of the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus takes time to says this Gentile that's faith. That's saving faith. That is the faith that it will inherit the kingdom of God. And Jesus said it ain't by nationality, it's not by race, it ain't by birth, it's by faith in Christ. And it's this Gentile's faith that made for a perfect object lesson for the kingdom of God. I want you to write it this way in point number three. You need to desire Christ to use you as a kingdom parable, a parable, a story. Right, an accounting. Like you, you need a desire that when people are trying to figure out, well, what is the kingdom of God all about? Who's, who's into the kingdom? And you would desire that through the Holy Spirit, that God would use your testimony as an, as an example in a story of unlikely people who are getting into the kingdom of God in spite of ourselves. And, and this is really, when we look at the New Testament, we look at Philippians 3.17, is a good verse, right? Where Paul says, brothers, I want you to imitate me. And I want, to keep your, I want you to keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in, in us, the type, the example, that's a Greek word, typos, right, type, that I, w- I want you, you want to know the types of people who get into the kingdom? Paul types, Timothy types, you're, you're, you're regenerate in here, living for the kingdom of God, you types. And what we have to say is, that, you know what, I want Christ to use me as a kingdom parable. I want the faith that I exhibit to be used by Christ to help other people understand what the kingdom is all about. And if they've been confused about the kingdom, I hope that my life would help straighten out some of that confusion, right? And if they're deceived about being in the kingdom, I'm hoping that my life and my testimony could help give them some truth and clarity about the kingdom. That's why I love baptism services, Our baptism, I love it because what happens is people come up here to fulfill, whether they knew it or not, number three, Christ is using you as a kingdom parable. Like he did the centurion, every person who gets up here and gets baptized is saying, here is a story of how Christ saved my life. Here's a story of how an unlikely individual inherits the kingdom of God. And let me tell you about it. I mean, every baptism, that is what they are. They are a shining example in the local church of how Christ is teaching everyone how to get into the kingdom. What is the kingdom? Who's going to be a citizen of the kingdom? And every time we put somebody into that baptistry and we raise them up, we're saying this is what it looks like to inherit the kingdom of God symbolically through baptism. And all I'm saying is that should be the desire for every single person in this room. Jesus, use my life as an example to help people understand what this thing that we call the gospel is all about. The good news of the kingdom is what Matthew calls it. And we have to say, is my life in line with the kingdom of God? Am I a, a citizen of the kingdom of God? And if I am, then I need to say I need my life to be a beacon that people would imitate. Every single thing I do perfectly? No. But the, is my life a type? It's a type of story, an account of who receives the kingdom of God. Let us serve as examples of this type of people Whose faith in Christ, like the centurion, shows the world the population, the makeup, the demographics of the kingdom of God. And it's going to be one peoples, those who exercise faith in Christ. Let's pray.